This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Steve Luxemburg is a senior editor at the Washington Post and the author of Annie's Ghost, A Journey into a Family Secret. During his time at the Post, he has overseen reporting that has earned numerous honors, including two Pulitzers. This book separate won the J. Anthony Lukash Work in Progress Award. When we think of civil rights, we often believe the Civil War and the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments set the stage for a future of equality for blacks. Yet we know today that was a tenuous win, but we may not appreciate that a Supreme Court decision in 1896, 30 years later, became more defining. The characters contributing to the decision the climate in which this occurred and the ramifications for race relations to this day are all a piece of Steve's riveting tale entitled Separate, the story of Plessy versus Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation. Imagine the Supreme Court of the United States taking on a case whereby a state, in this case Louisiana, wants to uphold a law that requires black people to sit in separate railroad cars from white people. And imagine that the state has authorized the railroad companies to deputize their conductors to make this decision on the spot. Meaning the conductor decides if you, the passenger, are black, you have to go to another car. Now imagine that a near unanimously decision with only one dissenting voice with only one dissenting voice, upheld this law. This is a very brief summary of the very complicated case called Plessy versus Ferguson that was argued in front of the Supreme Court in 1896 and set off the legality of segregation that lasted for almost three quarters of a century. The consequences of this decision still embrace our nation today. In separate, the story of Plessy versus Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation, award-winning author Steve Luxemburg draws on letters, diaries, and archival collections to tell this story through the eyes of the people caught up in the case. He braids the brief narratives of legal battles together with intimate cradle-to-grave portraits of the three key figures, Albion, Tourget, John Marshall Harlan, and Henry Billings Brown. And when we think of the civil rights, we often believe the Civil War and the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments set the stage for a future of equality for blacks. Yet we know today that that was a tenuous win. But we may not appreciate that a Supreme Court decision in 1896 13 years later, became so defining. So we talked about the characters, which we'll come back to, but let's fast forward because it actually is at the end of the book. Let's talk about the decision and how that came to come to the Supreme Court. 
Well, that's a great place to start. I, I should say that my book, separate, you don't get to the case until the last hundred pages. I know. <laughs> this is intentional. I wanted you to understand the people who bring the case, the resistors to separation, the people of color who are determined not to accept this cultural and then eventually mandated legal, law, the laws that uh, Louisiana and other states passed. Um, but I also wanted you to understand the lives of the people who make the decision. Because it's easy from 21st century eyes to look back and say, well, they were all racist. Mm. And many of them were. Certainly the Supreme Court was racist in its outlook in a very specific way. They felt that separation was legal and it could be equal. The Supreme Court, of course, in 1954 changes its mind on that. Uh, but so, not till 1954. But not until 1954. And we, of course, have not just Jim Crow of the 20th century, we have Jim Crow of the 19th century because separation begins in 1838 in the North on a railroad train in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. That's where its birthplace is, and that's where I start the story. So I'm going to add one imagine to your list there and say imagine that the state of Louisiana not only does those things, but it adds that passengers are committing a crime, a crime by riding in the wrong car. That They become the criminal. They become the criminal. So the, the conductor can charge them with a crime under the Separate Car Act of 1890, and they can be arrested and put, to jail, and put in jail. So the mixed-race, mostly French-speaking group of New Orleanians who are challenging this law, it's very important to understand that I don't think that this case could come out of any other city in the country in, 18, in the 1890s than New Orleans. Because? Because in Savannah, in, in uh, Richmond, in uh, uh, Atlanta, you don't yet have a wealthy enough, educated enough, determined enough group of people of color to bring such a lawsuit. Mm. There were certainly individual people of color who brought individual cases, but this was uh, a strategy brought by a committee of people whose ancestors had never been enslaved. Homer Plessy was a 29-year-old shoemaker who was, who was a volunteer to get arrested. They wanted him because he looked nearly white, and it was going to be part of their legal strategy to argue that in New Orleans, where you have every color of the spectrum, how could you possibly allow a conductor to walk down a railroad car and say, you here, you there? He wouldn't know the race of everyone. And there was no legal definition in Louisiana for colored. In other states, if your parents, your, your heritage, if you were one sixteenth black, you could be white. But in other states, you had to be one quarter. So, so it was all this confusion. So Steve, let's, because uh, I, I think it's an important clarifying point that the exercise by the group in New Orleans to make sure that everything was exactly right to test the law was key to what was going on. You're absolutely right. They needed to create the conditions that they felt would be the best conditions for bringing their case to the Supreme Court. So what conditions were those? They needed to have Homer Plessy arrested under the law that they were challenging. Because if he was arrested for disorderly conduct, 
not good. That's not the law they're challenging. If he was arrested for trespassing, if he was arrested for, for talking back to the conductor, none of those mattered. He had to be arrested for riding in the wrong railroad car. And so how do you make that happen? How do you get rid of serendipity? Well, you arrange it. Hmm. So they go to the railroad, the committee of New Orleanians, they go to the railroad, the East Louisiana Railroad in this case, and they ask the railroad to allow the arrest to happen. And they tell them that, um, the, that they will have a private detective that they have hired to bring the charge. And the railroad agrees. And the railroad agrees because, look, if the law is not going to survive, the railroad has saved the money of running an extra car for those fewer number of black passengers that were riding their railroad. Most of their passengers were white. They didn't need to run an extra car. Now, in some southern states, Georgia was notable, they were really interested in separation. And they wouldn't have done it no matter what the economics were. But in New Orleans, the East Louisiana Railroad was willing to, to be, participate in the case. Uh, that created the conditions that they needed. Now, it's still a long journey, as we know, from a local case to the Supreme Court. Nothing is guaranteed. They had to go through the state courts first, and the state courts had to uh, treat the case in a certain way. But it was kind of in everybody's interest that the Supreme Court pass on this. So we get to the decision. And so the Supreme Court has how many Northerners and how many Southerners? Well, it's a very good question. I like to do a little quiz with people. We're not going to do it in this uh, audience tonight. But who was Homer Plessy? Nobody knows that he is that he was nearly white and he was chosen because of his color in order to challenge the law. Who were the Supreme Court? Now, in this case, uh, most people don't realize that the Constitution does not set the number of Supreme Court justices. It's nine because the Congress passed the law that the Constitution required in order for that to happen. In this case, seven uh Justices were in the majority. One was the dissenter, as you mentioned, John Marshall Harlan, and one did not participate. Mm. Of those seven, surprisingly to me, six were Northerners. So it's not a Southern case. It's not a Southern a court. These are Republican judges for the most part, justices for the most part. And this, it's important to note again in the 19th century, the Republican Party is the party of anti-slavery. It was founded on the principle of anti-slavery in 1854. And because all of the presidents after the Civil War were Republican, you had largely Republican judges, justices, until Grover Cleveland becomes president in the 1890s and appoints two Democratic justices. So this goes totally in the face of what we might think, because the presumption would be you've got all these Northerners, they're Republicans, they're the party of Abraham Lincoln who, you know, fought the Civil War, signed the Emancipation Proclamation. So how is it that their judicial thinking would come to the conclusion that separate, because the word segregation wasn't a term used then, separate but equal, which we'll come to, was in line with the terms of the 14th Amendment. How did they thread that needle? Well, we have to go back to the Civil War and the end of the Civil War. The most important politicians in the country 
1865 to 1875 did not reside in the White House. They resided in Congress, where senators like Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, Senator Lyman Turnbull of Illinois, these were the leaders of the radical Republicans who were trying to enact these new amendments that, as Eric Foner, the historian, has said, were a revolution, a second revolution for the United States. The first Constitution was the one that had three-fifths of a person embedded in it as a compromise to the South to give them more political power. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, mostly the 13th and 14th, get rid of that three-fifths clause and substitute instead the 13th Amendment, which is the abolition of slavery and the banning of any badge of servitude. The 14th is equal protection and due process. And the 15th is voting rights for black men. And I stress black men, not black women or any woman. Uh, but those three amendments taken together totally change the nature of the country and increase the anger, fear, and resentment of Southern whites. You cannot underestimate how angry, how violent, how much intimidation, how much threat. Lynching begins within 10 years after the passage of these amendments. This is the cauldron in which separation is, is, uh, is coming to pass. Because now, they lost the war, but it doesn't mean they bought in to the notion of the North. No, they didn't buy in at all. And in fact, you know, today you can find people who want to call it the war of northern aggression. Uh, but more importantly, I think, is that they weren't permitted to vote. The, the, the ones who were the leaders of the Confederacy, who were Confederate officers, they were banned from rewriting their own constitutions in each of the states before the states were allowed back into the Union. And so they felt disenfranchised. Mm. And they reacted by creating, among other things, the Ku Klux Klan. They reacted by threatening and, and committing violence against people of color. They reacted by voter suppression. They reacted by trying to reduce the numbers of blacks so that whites could continue to be in power. Yeah. And that's the cauldron in which this, this happens. So you asked about the Supreme Court threading the needle. The Supreme Court in the 19th century is very different than the Supreme Court that we are used to today. Now, imagine if I polled the audience and I said, give me one phrase that you think of when you think of Supreme Court. Some of you would say 5-4, liberal conservative, not in the 19th century. 19th century, all nine men are white and they're all male. All nine are believers in property rights. They all come from the same class. They all are educated. They all are wealthy. They see the world in much the same way. Some of them are Democrats. Most of them are Republicans. But it is not a, a, a heterogeneous court in any way. And so the, they, they are worried about their legitimacy, so worried that there are some terms where there are zero, zero 5-4 decisions. Maybe there's a 6-3. Sometimes there's a 7-2. But mostly, 90% of their decisions are unanimous. Now, they're not dealing with the kind of contentious issues that today's Supreme Court deals with. Civil rights legislation is relatively new. Therefore, civil rights lawsuits are relatively new. So they don't have a lot of them. But the three that they get in the 1870s and 1880s all lead toward a very, very narrow 
view of the 14th Amendment, not the more expansive view that we are used to today. They take very seriously the clause, no state can abridge the rights of its citizens, the civil rights of its citizens. Well, if the state's not involved, then what are you talking about? There's nothing to talk about. We're done here. So they, 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 didn't, they would not allow the Civil Rights Act of 1875 to apply to individuals. So if a theater owner bars a person of color from sitting in the white gallery or bars a person of color from riding on the railroad train, that's not a violation of the 14th Amendment because it's just an individual practicing discrimination. Maybe morally abhorrent, but that's not their problem. And not the goal of the federal government to protect not that the role, citizen. Not the role, not in that era, not in, as they interpreted it. So by 1896, they're not really threading a needle. They've threaded the needle already, and Plessy just fits into it just like all the other cases that came before. Thus, the precedents that we always hear about, the Supreme Court cares about precedent. But, you know, the issue of precedents, I mean, one of the things that was striking to me in in thinking about Plessy versus Ferguson or even Dred Scott, although that was obviously decided in the, fifth, in the 1850s before uh, the Civil War, is this notion that we feel certain about today that Supreme Court precedence is what we want our justices to honor. Yet when you read a case like Plessy versus Ferguson, you think, well, that was a case so of its time. Why should that have precedence? Well, the court was very careful in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 not to say they were overturning Plessy, although they effectively do. And they cite the case and they say that it was decided in a way that they are now going to decide differently. Uh, but, you know, when I heard Senator Susan Collins uh, say that when she had a visit from Brett Kavanaugh, that she felt more comfortable with his nomination because he said, Roe v. Wade is settled precedent. He didn't say he agreed with it. He didn't say he didn't agree with it, but he said it was settled pre precedent. My ears as the author of Separate is, what if a Supreme Court nominee had said to a senator in 1950, Plessy is settled precedent, don't worry about that? We would still have Plessy, right? Yeah. So I'm glad that the Supreme Court will take another look at a case that, in our view, today is decided wrongly. This means, this is encouraging to me. I don't want the Supreme Court to only pay attention to precedent. Right. I want them to rethink. Now, now let's... Um Let's go and cover the characters that form really the backbone of your book. So let's start with a Connecticut guy. Connecticut guy. Henry. And I, have, I have in the audience somebody who helped me do a little research oh. on the Connecticut guy, whose okay. name was Henry Billings Brown. Right. So Henry Billings Brown, a northerner, Connecticut was in the north. I'm sure your researcher figured that out, um, was the majority opinion. He wrote the majority opinion. So you would not expect a Connecticut person, at the even at that time, to be the majority decision saying separate but equal. If you didn't understand the entire history of the 19th century and you just came to the resumes of Henry Billings Brown and John Marshall Harlan, you would have predicted they would have ended up in the opposite sides of the case. Exactly. 
Henry Billings Brown was actually born in, in Lee in the, in, the Ber in the Berkshires. His family moved back to Connecticut. His family was really always a Connecticut family uh, when he was in his teens. And he grew up around the town of Ellington and Stonington, two very different cities. But his, his uncle was a very wealthy uh, owner of a, of a fleet of, of sailing ships that took goods over to Europe. And so he spent a lot of his time down in Stonington with his uncle because it was frankly more, more fun than being in Ellington. But he really liked Ellington, a very small town. And he said, if one cared not at all about all of the uh, you know, things you can find in cities, uh, Ellington would be a perfect place. It doesn't have any noise. It's got a lot of bucolic you know, countryside. I could make a life in Ellington if I was willing to be bored, is what he, is what he kind of said. Uh, but he is somebody who goes out west, and west in those days meant Michigan, <laughs> where I happen to be from. And I spent many hours in the Detroit Public Library with Henry Billings Brown's 20 years of pocket diaries. Whoa. Pocket diaries. These, these things you carry in your pocket with six lines to write a little bit about your day. And of course, what I was looking for were great insights his internal monologue. And are you allowed to actually handle them? I was allowed to handle them. Nobody looks at these diaries. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're fit in the palm of your hand. And I read page by page. It's pretty cool, Steve. It was. It was really cool. 20 years worth. It took me a month in two different trips. And about halfway through, I just remember slapping one of the diaries down and saying, Henry, goddammit, would you please talk about something other than the weather? <laughs> because he would start every entry with, it it's was raining sunny. today, it's sunny today. <laughs> right. Give me some insight, Henry. Uh, but he was not a terribly insightful person. He was mm. not interested in introspection. He was kind of grumpy. And he, uh, if he were an A.A. Milne char character, he would be Eeyore. Yeah. He would be complaining all the time about something. He wasn't a very good lawyer. When he would lose a case, he said, I'm not a very good lawyer. When he would uh, have some justice uh, uh, chastise him, he would say, why are they always picking on me? He almost flunked out of Yale. Yeah. Well, he didn't actually. You know, he, he was a good student he was, at Yale. He, he, he wasn't the best student, but he was uh, a class of 1856. Right. A lot of memorable people in the class of 1856, including another Supreme Court justice, the one who did not participate in Plessy, uh, but also several senators. Um, Yale was Yale then. And Yale, yeah, it's Yale, Yale now. Yeah. Right. Um, so how would would you have imagined that Henry Billings Brown would have been the majority decision in Plessy versus Ferguson from his career? Well, his persona. You know, by the time that that case is decided, it's as I say, it's no surprise that the Supreme Court is going to go in that direction. Um, so I would have been surprised because of his background. More importantly than what I thought is what Albion Terje, the lead lawyer for the New Orleanian group, thought. Because he was counting. He was counting heads. And he had to get Henry Brown. Remember, he's going for 5-4 because he's not going for 9-0. He can't get there. He's going for 5-4. And Brown Which has is already to be, unusual. Yes. And Brown has to be one of the five. Yeah. He knows the two Democrats are not going to be on his side. So they're out. He knows the Chief Justice Melville Fuller is not coming along with him. Right. So that leaves him only six justices. He's got to get Henry Brown. And Henry Brown was a, 
wasn't a frequent dissenter, but when he dissented, he was often with John Harlan. And so it wasn't crazy to think that Brown might have been on Harlan's side. It wasn't crazy to think that one of the other justices wouldn't, would have been on. Beyond that, what we have here is optimism. Yeah, uh, uh, maybe delusional optimism delusional even optimism. then. But now we have John Marshall Harlan, a Kentucky-born, slave-owning gentleman. He's the dissenting opinion. What about his life would have suggested that he would have been the dissenting opinion in that decision? Well, from a nonfiction writer's point of view, and even from a novelist's point of view, John Marshall Harlan is a gift because he is such a contradiction and he evolves in such a way that you could not script a movie any better than to have a character like that. He starts off life as a slaveholding son. He ends up inheriting, his, he and his mother inherit the family's slaves in 1863. By the way, Kentucky's slave, enslaved population was not freed by the Emancipation Proclamation because Kentucky was not a slave state. Right. So you had this contradiction of the enslaved population being liberated in the slave states but still an enslaved population existing in Kentucky. That's how unusually complicated the United States is in, right. the, in this period. So Harlan uh, does the, uh, he, he runs for Congress in 1859 on a, uh, a pro-slavery platform. There's no question that he believes that slavery is fine. He's not interested in being cruel, but he sees no problem with white people owning other people, owning black people. Then Civil War breaks out and he raises a Union regiment. First contradiction, why isn't he on the Confederate side? And he side? was part of the do-nothing party or something the, the briefly? The do-nothing, you know, the know-nothing. 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 <laughs> They've been do-nothing as well. You may be confused with today's politicians. <laughs> now, the know-nothings, do you know why they were called know-nothings? No, I, 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 I never, I had read about this party before, but... I, I couldn't imagine why somebody so this would name is, their party that. This is a party that was the anti-immigrant party of the 1850s. They mm. were founded on the basis of anti-immigrant policies. They were virulently anti-Catholic. They thought the Pope was going to take over America. They didn't want anybody uh, to... If you took your orders from Rome, then you were on, uh, on their bad list. That's how they saw it. Well, this party, they didn't call themselves the Know-Nothing Party. They called themselves the American Party, much, much more uh, patriotic. But they were called the Know-Nothings because they started as a secret society. And when they emerged from their meetings, if you were to run into them on the see. street, they would say, Know you, nothing. What, what did you talk about? <laughs> and they would say, I know nothing. And so like any good group that was being mocked, they embraced the term and called themselves the Know-Nothing. So that's where that phrase comes from. So John Marshall... So he, he belonged to this party, and later in his life, John Marshall Harling was embarrassed, he said. He wrote this in his uh, letters to his children. He was embarrassed about being a member of the Know Nothing Party when he looked back on it. So let's, let's go back for a second, because John, John Harlan writes the dissenting opinion. The whole Supreme Court decision doesn't get a lot of attention. His dissent doesn't get a lot of attention, but his dissent in the um, 
civil rights case of 1883. 1883 was something like 15,000 words. 14,000. Yes. And was printed. In a lot of newspapers. Why? Because Why it was so unusual then? for anyone from the South to write such a dissenting opinion. Now, the 1883 civil rights cases very quickly overturned the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which called for equality in all sorts of public accommodations. And Harling was so nervous about this dissent. And, and as I write in separate, he cared more about this dissent at that moment. He had been in the court six years than any other decision he had written. How do I know this? Well, he dedicated an entire scrapbook to it. Like any good author, he was collecting his reviews. So there's a scrapbook at the University of Louisville Law Library, you can handle it, which has letters from people that he received. It has uh, newspaper articles about the dissents, editorials either praising or criticizing him. It's a goldmine for somebody who's doing research because it gives you a window into his soul. Mm. Uh, but Harlan, at, I, I didn't finish my, my narrative. I, I, uh, I let myself get distracted here. Um, he, he ends up after the Civil War as a Kentucky's attorney general. And he opposes the three civil rights amendments, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th, because he thinks it's Kentucky's job to abolish slavery in Kentucky. It's Kentucky's job to establish equal rights. It's Kentucky's job to give voting rights. And he's still holding on to this notion of states' rights. But then as the violence begins, he ends up prosecuting Ku Klux Klan members as an adjunct. He doesn't, he's not a full-time employee of the federal government, but the Justice Department hires him for a little while in 1873. He becomes a Republican, which in Kentucky was like signing your death warrant politically because he can't win, and he runs twice for governor and loses both times. He knows he's going to lose. But he begins to turn his eyes away from Kentucky toward Washington, where he feels like that's where his career should be headed. And he ends up getting nominated to the Supreme Court. And he has, he has to defend himself to his fellow Republicans. In the North, they think, they say to President Hayes, this is the best you can do? You want to nominate some guy from Kentucky who used to be a slaveholding, uh, from a slaveholding family? Who, who opposed the three civil rights amendments, that's the best you can do. And so he writes this extraordinary 18-page letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee, which held no hearings in those days, saying, yes, I, I, I was a slaveholder, and I renounced that. Yes, I was pro-slavery, and I renounced that. Yes, I opposed those three amendments, and I renounced that. And here's why. Here's why I'm a good Republican. Um, he doesn't have much opposition, but whatever opposition he had fades away. And the, and the motivation of President Hayes, who nominated him, was to say to the South, I, I'm serious about reunifying this country. I got one of those guys. Yeah, I, I got a Southerner. We're good here, right? That's what he's trying to say to the South. Well, of course, the South wasn't much happy, happier with Carlin either, mm. because they didn't see him as one of their own. He was a Republican. So, yeah. And, you know, the other thing that I came to understand in reading your book is that from the distance of today, even if you're well-read, or let's say well-ish read, that you thought that the legal issues were settled. But what became clear as I was reading the book is the distinction that existed between the political rights of Blacks, which 
people like Harlan and others began to think was inevitable and needed to be recognized as contrasted with their social rights. So talk a little bit about that, because that to me seems like that began to define what we are, we're struggling with to today. Well, the undercurrent of social rights, that was the phrase that was developed by white people to throw in the face of people of color to say, we're not, you know, we don't want to give you social rights. You can't make us eat dinner with you, go to the movies with you. And there, of course, no movies, but yeah, that's a mistake you'll cut out. <laughs> go to the theater with you, go to church with you, etc. Um, and it was a red herring. John Harlan says this in his dissent quite clearly. He says, no one's talking about those things. We're talking about public accommodations. We're talking about the right to travel, a place to stay, a place to eat, a, a way to ride. All those things are public. So, and let's just clarify, because John Harlan considered the private railroad car to be incidental to the decision. It was the rails that were public. Well, he was pointing out that it's a public highway financed with public money under a public charter, most likely, right. a public right of way. And he was saying that to consider this to be a private railroad car is to allow a thin disguise to, to occur here. There's, no, there's, nothing, there's nothing private about this. That was his view. And it was, of course, the dissenting view, not the majority view. Um, the majority view was is that none of these things matter. The majority view was, does Louisiana have the right, the power in its legislature to enact legislation under its police authority to keep law and order? to separate the races in order so there'd be no violence, there'd be no tension. And yes, we believe, we the majority, uh, under the 10th Amendment, which reserves to the states all rights not reserved expressly to Congress and the federal government, that Louisiana has that power. That's the way that, that the decision was, was, was uh, rendered. Uh, Harlan rejected that entirely. He, he embraced the idea that Sending a person of color to a separate car was a badge of servitude. It, it, it put a mark of distinction on them. He accepted that there was no equal, pro, equal protection. He accepted that there was no due process because he said, the conductor's not, he's not taking any testimony. He's not gathering evidence. How's he deciding? How is he deciding this? He has no, no, none of the means by which due process would, would require to decide, to decide this case, to decide that, that thing instantaneously. Snap your fingers, you go to this car. Um, but it's very important to remember that these are laws now in the 1890s. Louisiana, Texas, Florida, they had enacted these laws. Louisiana was a pioneer in, in uh, putting forth that it was, a, it was gonna be a crime for you to ride in the wrong car. But they were acting on a custom, a practice that had been in existence for 60 years that began at the dawn of the railroad age when three out of eight Massachusetts railroads decided to separate their passengers from the moment they began their operations in the, 18, the late 1830s. Uh, a problem that I say didn't need to be solved because mm -hmm. if you look at the Massachusetts census, Massachusetts census in 1840, the number of people, free people of color was fewer than 1%, mm. fewer than 1%. They were not riding the railroads. The only reason that there was any tension at all on the railroads was because of the abolitionists. The abolitionists who were in love with the railroads because it was much better than riding on horseback to your night meetings, 
And their newest agent was a man named Frederick Douglass, newly freed from his enslaved conditions, you know, a fugitive from his slave conditions in Maryland. And he was riding on the railroads with a white abolitionist. And they were delighting. They were, they were having a great time confronting the conductors as this pair of white and And Frederick black. Douglass was a big man. He was a large guy. He was, as I say in, in separate, he was broad-shouldered. And he writes in his memoir, he writes several times in his memoir about these confrontations on the railroad, in which, in one case, he was so strong, he said, that when six men came to oust him, he was able to lift his railroad seat up off of its bolts from the floor. Pretty good story. Yeah. Yeah, I don't believe it, but I, pretty good story. But, you know, speaking of Frederick Douglass, Steve, for reasons that are either accidental or on purpose, uh, I have... Over a relatively short period of time, interviewed David Blight, who wrote the Frederick Douglass biography, and Ron Chernow, who wrote the infamous um, Hamilton, but I read the Grant biography. Um, and I would have liked to have written Hamilton, uh, the infamous Hamilton. Biography. Yeah, yeah, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of, I'm sure a lot of historian journalists would. And the third book was Brenda Wineapple's The Impeachers. And Two things were striking to me from reading those three books and then your book in short order. And, I, and I'd like you to address it. One is the incredible amount of violence that erupted right after the Civil War in Kentucky um, and in other states, a lot of it encouraged by Johnson. Um, and President and, Johnson. President Johnson. And what set what set that up. But the second was, which seems sort of unrelated, and maybe maybe it is, that thousands of people showed up to hear people speak. Like Frederick Douglass would have thousands and thousands of people showing up, and it was a way of wooing audiences or convincing them. So if you would speak a little bit to that and how that sort of fertilized the ground um, for these cases. Well, the period in Reconstruction, which let's let's be clear about this, is between 1865 and 1877, when President Hayes ends the federal occupation of the South and withdraws all federal troops and appoints John Harlan as another piece of of evidence of his try, trying to reunify the country. Uh, is uh, a period in which people of color are are achieving. Uh, electoral victories in state legislatures and in the Congress. Um, and weren't there more elected blacks and blacks in federal government during that period of time that has ever happened since? Well, I don't know that. I know it was more than any until the modern era. Yeah. Um, and so when people who are white supremacists, if not white supremacists, white superiorists, mm. are looking at what's happening... They're afraid. They're, they think that, that this is not... This could be the end of their could, power. This is the end of their power. And they were determined to do everything in their power to prevent that from happening. And Douglas understood this. Mm. I, I want to read something that Douglas said. He gave a speech to the 1876 Republican National Convention in which he talked about the feeling of being the outsider. And it's a remarkable... Uh, um, By the way, I'd recommend that book to um, everyone, those books to everybody listening and to all of you 
uh, they're here, the Frederick Douglass biography by David Blight, the impeachers by Brenda Wineapple, and the Grant biography by Ron Chernow. I mean, the those three books plus Steve give you this in-depth immersion, immersion to understand what the world was like between, you know, 1830 and 1900 in a way that I think is, was enlightening to me and someone, and I wasn't new to reading about these errors, but taken collectively, you, or I should say, I not only got a sense of the, um, of the fact that the Civil War did not end what was the problem. And that it, when you think about the issues that we're dealing with now about the rights that still have not inured to blacks, it fundamentally, you see how its origins were right there. And that it happened right away in this idea, you know, which is why I love the subtitle of your book, Steve, of slavery to separate not slavery to equality in the sense that, because when I begin to, when I was reading the book, I was thinking, gee, the, the, the travesty wasn't in the separate. The travesty was in the way equality was judged and measured. Well, you know, think about yourself. If you were a liberated person after the Civil War, probably no education because it was illegal probably no marriage. Um, you had children and you had to care for them. You're not thinking about abstract things like right. integration. You're thinking about survival. Yeah. And you're trying to claw your way to some version of opportunity. Uh, so it was fine for politicians in Washington to be arguing over these issues passing civil rights legislation, but most people of color are not interested in going to the theater. They're interested in having a job, a job and the ability and not being uh, pressed into peonage in, uh, in the South. And as a result of a trumped up charge in which you can't pay the fine, so you get pushed into forced labor. And that's why it's so distressing to me when we're having a conversation about reparations, whatever one's view of that, but to have the majority leader of the, of, of the Senate, Mr. McConnell, say that the conversation should end at slavery. What world is he living in that mm -hmm. he doesn't understand that it didn't end at slavery? It hasn't yeah. ended yet, but it, has, it didn't end at slavery. It went on through convict labor. It went on through Jim Crow. It went on through lack of opportunities and lack of educational opportunities. This is the kind of, of conversation we ought to be having. And I think it's what I, one of the things that I've learned in doing this book, and one of the reasons why I wanted to do the book is, is that after 40 years of editing stories at the Baltimore Sun and the Washington Post, of writing stories in which race often had either a central component to the stories or an undercurrent, I really felt that I did not understand the roots of our racial conversation. And, and I do think that race is our national conversation. We're either talking about race or we're avoiding talking about race. People of color will tell you that for them, this history is a continuing trauma. Mm -hmm. They either have parents or grandparents or great-grandparents who can tell the stories of this era. People who are white don't know that history. 
And they don't understand, therefore, the conversation. And so part of my goal in writing this book was to bridge that divide, to help us have a conversation. This is not black history. This is our history. This is not white history. This is our history. It's everybody's history. And that's the kind of country that I, I'm, I'm hoping to... So, Steve, have you gotten pushback? I mean, our listeners won't know this, but you're a white man. Have you gotten pushback? I think from... they might know it. <laughs> they might not. <laughs> um, have you gotten pushback for taking responsibility for telling this story as a white person? No pushback. Uh, I have gotten some questions and I have gotten some, uh, some, some commentary. Uh, but I was invited to the first annual anti-racist book festival in Washington that uh, the brilliant Ibram Kendi organized and was held in April. He's the author of the current book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Hmm. Uh, and, and also, just, let's just add this clarification. So, his his notion is that there is no there are racists, and there are people who consider themselves not racist. His position is, in order to have standing as not being racist, you must be anti-racist. That. It, you know, it it falls into the category of what I call silence is complicity. I think that's a pretty good summary, uh, and I'll I'll leave it there. Um, he also is the author of Stamped from the Beginning, which he won the National Book Award for uh, about a history the history of racism in, in America from its founding in 1619. Um, so, but I wanted to read from Douglas because I want you and the audience to hear how a person living in the 1870s saw the world. Mm -hmm. Now, Douglas is speaking to the, Demo the uh, Republican National Convention. It was held in uh, Cincinnati. Um, and here's what I write. Amid the bartering and brokering and bantering about delegate counts, it was easy to lose sight of the issues that had defined the Republican Party since its founding. Near the end of Wednesday's opening session, a surprise speaker brought those questions back to the fore. Addressing his first presidential convention, Frederick Douglass sharply reminded the delegates that equal rights was a goal still to be attained, not an achievement to be celebrated. He said, you say, you say you have emancipated us. Listen to his sarcasm. You say you have emancipated us. You have and I thank you for it. You say you have enfranchised us. You have, and I thank you for it. But what is your emancipation, and what is your enfranchisement? What does it all amount to if a black man, having been freed by the letter of your law, is unable to exercise that freedom, and after having been freed from the slaveholder's lash, is to be subjected, subjected to the slaveholder's shotgun? You turned us loose. You turned us loose to the sky, to the storm, to the whirlwind. And worst of all, you turned us loose to the wrath of our infuriated masters. The question now is, do you mean to make good on the promises in your constitution? And then I write, your law, your constitution, words carefully chosen, reflecting the sting of separation. Mm. That's what well, it looked like to a man living in the 1870s. 
and it helps me because the first duty of a historian is to not look at the world through my eyes, is mm -hmm. to look at the world through the eyes of the people I'm telling the story of. And that helped me understand how a person of color saw it. Mm. Now, not everybody saw it the way Frederick Douglass saw it. He, he was running this convention in 1883 of colored men. And what struck me was, it's like every unruly convention. He's got delegates who are revolting and who are saying, you're just an old guy, get off the stage. You know, nothing changes. Although it's hard <laughs> to beat the eloquence of that language. So I... I and that's what David Blight, I mean, if he... If he were uh, on your podcast, I'm sure he he was really moved by the eloquence of Frederick Douglass. Well, you can't help but not be moved not only by Frederick Douglass's story of managing to go from being an enslaved man to the it, becoming the most renowned speaker in the world at that time and eloquent and persuasive. And yeah, when he spoke in 1883 at this convention of colored men in Louisville, um, the Louisville uh, Courier Journal described how people came from all over the region yeah. just to hear Frederick Douglass give his, his keynote address. And this was true when he went to Europe. Yeah. Scripture. And yeah, it, it, it was it was crazy. So I think what we'll do, Steve, is I do think, um, although there's so much more that we could cover, I think closing with Frederick Douglass's words um, is important because I like what you said about your purpose in telling this story, and I think that. Um, his words are a reminder to us that it had not yet been accomplished, even with the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. So um, I want to thank you for writing this book, for joining us here at Wesley and R.J. Julia in Middletown, and joining us on the Just the Right Book podcast. And for everybody listening, um, it doesn't quite read like a murder mystery, but uh, the the arc of the story makes it incredibly engaging, and it culminates in the Supreme Court decision of Plessy versus Ferguson. So thank you so much, Steve. Well, thank you for having me. And I would say that, you know, we live in Amazon's world, but we shouldn't always buy from it. <laughs> uh, Ever. In, independent independent bookstores are so important, and not just because they offer books and other kinds of, of items, but because they allow authors like me to come and share my, my book with you, allow me to meet you, hear your questions, get feedback. Independent bookstores are community spaces. They are mm -hmm. not just places to to participate in commerce. Well, thank you. So thank you all thank for coming. Thank you all for coming. Uh, you can buy the book back there. Steve will be right here uh, to sign your book. And again, I really want to thank you all for attending and joining in the conversation. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. 
produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.